Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and with me to discuss Jeremy Hunt's first budget as Chancellor is Harriet Baldwin, Tory MP and Chair of the Treasury Select Committee, Ben Zaranko, Senior Research Economist at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, as well as Nick Thomas-Simmons, Labour's Shadow Secretary of State for International Trade, and Kevin Foster, Tory MP, former Minister and a leading member of the Conservative Growth Group. So it was dubbed a budget for growth, and the Chancellor said in the Commons the economy was proving the doubters wrong. Ben, the IFS obviously have done their review into the budget so far. I just wondered what you kind of made about Hunt's comments about proving the doubters wrong on the economy, discussing on on kind of inflation and whether the economy is going to go into a sort of technical recession. What were your kind of take on the the, the macroeconomic level in terms of what the economy looks like in the next year and, and beyond? Well, the Chancellor was quite fortunate in that the OBR were not just considerably more optimistic than they were back in the autumn, but they're now considerably more optimistic than the Bank of England and most other independent forecasters. And that gave him some room for manoeuvre. And he chose to use that on a broadly sensible set of things, on growth-friendly things, like encouraging employment, encouraging investment. But he's fortunate that he had the OBR's forecasts to deal with and not the banks. And we also shouldn't lose sight of the fact that even though things now look not quite so bad as they did previously, this is still an enormously difficult period for households. The medium term outlook still doesn't look fantastic by historic or indeed international standards. And so we're very much not out of the woods yet. And we should all hope that these policies announced in the budget aimed at boosting growth do just that. Mm. Nick, what was what was Labour's take on, on the budget? You were sat in the chamber watching your leader, Keir Starmer, said that it, it dressed up stagnation as stability. What are you going to make of it? Yes, it did uh, dress up stagnation as stability, but that's really an indication more than anything of the chaos that came before with the Liz Trust premiership and the disastrous mini budget of last September for which households up and down the country are still paying a Tory mortgage premium. This was a budget, firstly, that lacked ambition. It was a budget that continues with managed decline. You know, we see a downgrading of the growth forecast. Growth seems to remain pretty anemic going forward. But it was also a budget about wrong choices. What was the handout in this budget, the surprise measure? It was this measure to the very wealthiest 1% in terms of their pension pots, which was the wrong decision at the wrong time. Mm. Yeah, we'll come on to the kind of the the pension tax reform. But first, I wanted to ask you, Kevin, obviously, I said you're a member of the Conservative Growth Group, the kind of clue is in the title, what you want to kind of see the government sorts of policies to push. I know that you wanted to see some a low tax economy. What did you make of especially things like the fiscal drag that's being planned, the freezing of income tax thresholds that are coming in? I think in April, they're going to bring 1.7 more people into income tax in general and 1.2 million more people into the higher rate of income tax. What did you kind of make of that with your Conservative Growth Group hat on? I think we were generally pleased with some of the things we saw in the budget. And it has to be said, the thresholds is something that had already been confirmed before. So it didn't come as a surprise. And that affects those getting a a pay rise over Mm. the thresholds. You know, it doesn't see the thresholding in terms of the 50%, in terms of the 40% one, 50,000. For us, there were some plenty some things to welcome there. We'll come on to the pensions in a minute and also looking at some of the changes around deductions. So again, that might give an opportunity for businesses that are you know, investing in particularly investment in improving productivity, so vital to delivering real growth within the economy and on some of the investment zones. But I think particularly the investment zones are probably ones where we would instantly look at where you could go further. You know, there were a lot of 
local authorities who last year did place a bid, who did agree specific areas where planning flexibilities might make a difference. Because in many areas, the things that we desperately need to do is regenerate and reshape, for example, our town centres. And actually getting on with growth at a local level can actually be allowing developers and others to get on with building projects within our town centres. And those are the sort of Mm. things where... I think we would like to see, you know, an, an idea that that's, you know, a sort of a starter for 12 in this case, rather than a starter for 10. And again, that's where local authorities give, you know, are, are agreed to make change. You know, we're not talking about, you know, suddenly taking off protections on uh, Greenbelt and other sites that no local authority would wish to see developed. Mm. Harriet, in your comment in the, in the comments yesterday, you said that Jeremy Hunt is a lucky chancellor. Can you explain just a little bit more what you mean by that? First of all, when he stood up in November and reversed so many of the changes from quasi quarting mini budget, he anticipated that energy costs would be quite a bit higher this winter because the cap that has been put in place for households has actually left a sort of completely unfunded risk to the taxpayer above, above that cap. So if energy prices had been massively higher, or even where he budgeted for them in November, it would have cost the Treasury a lot more. And so he's been lucky that it's a warmer wind than anticipated and that the price of energy has fallen. And that gave him, we think, about £6 billion extra pounds to work with. way in which he's made his own luck, though, is by stabilising things last November, he's actually uh, made the gilt market strong, so where the government funds its um, borrowing. And the savings in terms of interest rate, that's worth about £4 billion right there. Um, just since November. Yeah, I think you talk about the, the creating that sort of headroom. One of the ways that he's spending it is this pension tax reform. I think you said that you were surprised that it's going to re- apply to everyone. As people have mentioned, it was meant to try and stop sort of senior doctors from retiring out of the workforce early. What did you make of the decision to abolish the, the cap for everyone? I was surprised by that. I expected him to do something to tackle the issue with NHS consultants and, and GPs. But when I raised this as a suggestion, you see the officials on the committee said actually could be really difficult to implement. You have just one group of people helped by measure, really. Mm. And I imagine that that's probably similar advice that was given to the Chancellor. And so he ended up just going to do it for everyone in order to make sure that he met this requirement that uh, consultants and Gs not be sent this message that it's better off to retire. Yeah, I think sort of practically and politically, it was probably quite difficult. But but Ben, your, your boss at the, the IFS, Paul Johnson, said that scrapping the lifetime allowance was a rather large sledgehammer to crack a small nut. You know, it's only going to affect about 15,000 people. It might cost something like 80,000 per person. Yeah, the, the labour supply effects from that policy are likely to be very small. The point is that I'm sure there are practical challenges to targeting something just at NHS doctors if you were to do it through changes to tax relief. But you could go to the source and you could look at tweaking the NHS pension scheme itself. And there were in the small print of the budget some measures that do do those things, some of the things that, for example, the BMA have been asking for. But the, the big problem here is really that NHS doctors' remuneration is really heavily skewed towards their pension. That's why they're you know bumping up against these limits. And arguably, that might be better 
you know, rebalanced so that maybe they get a bit more in upfront pay and a bit less in pension, provide some more flexibility. Mm. And in fact, everyone, everyone could be better off, but that's probably more of a medium term proposition. Yeah, it, feel, it feels like they were just pulling a lever they could pull sort of straight away, essentially, to try and make a change. And that's perhaps as it would be take longer to do something a bit more nuanced as you, as you describe it. Yeah, I think that's right. And if I could just add one more thing, just in response to something that Harriet said, I absolutely agree that the Chancellor is lucky that we had a warm winter and extremely lucky that energy prices have gone down rather than up. In one sense, though, he's quite unlucky in his timing of when he's become Chancellor, because actually in this present climate with higher interest rates, high levels of debt and quite anemic medium term growth forecasts, it's actually a very difficult time to meet your fiscal rules. The OBR said themselves that to now have debt falling probably requires tighter fiscal policy than at any time since 2010. And that's why we've got taxes going up to their highest ever level. We've got public services being squeezed and some of them very much struggling. We've got debt basically flatlining as a fraction of national income. And everything feels tricky. And it's because of that unfortunate set of circumstances, which has dealt the Chancellor quite a tricky hand, I would argue. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't an easy time to sort of take over. Nick, just what's Labour's view of this, of the pension uh, tax reforms? I, I understand that you probably look to, to scrap it, uh, this change, if you were to, to get into office uh, after an election. Yes, we were, but just briefly to deal with Harriet's point, because I used to work in the criminal justice system, in the legal system, and I can remember the debate around judges' pensions where we had to get it right. We wanted to use the experience that the judges had in the later parts of their career, and we had to make sure there was a appropriate pensions incentive to do that. And there was a debate around the retirement age. Now, a solution was found that that applied to judges. What the government should have done in this case is find a solution that applied to this issue in the NHS, not make this this wider, expensive choice that is just the wrong choice this time when families up and down the country are struggling. And this, what is essentially a very large giveaway, is being given to the top 1%. Mm. Uh, Kevin, I know you've, you have you welcomed it. Do you fear slightly that there could be this narrative around the budget now in a sense that you know there's been a bit of a giveaway to those at the very earning a lot of money and yet those at the bottom are going to be dragged into paying more tax? Do you, do you fear that that's, that's perhaps how it might end up being looked at in the future, even though obviously, like you say, this policy does help to try and get doctors to stay within the workforce? Well, the narrative this morning is that the BMA has been confirming that doctors are either cancelling their retirement or even coming back into work and out of retirement. So that's, I think, the key thing people will be seeing of this change that was made. And I have to say, it's really interesting to hear the Labour Party's view on this today and contrast it to their view a few months back when apparently scrapping this and keeping doctors in work would be saving lives. So it's really quite interesting to hear now the commitment that they reverse it and cancel well, it. No, my, no, my position so on the document is I'm very, I'm very, I'm very clear that yeah. this will get people who are at the top of their professions will be able to stay working. And remember, when people draw their pension, when they draw the income for the pension, they're still subject to income tax on the level of pension they receive. This is not about completely avoiding tax in all circumstances. So as Harriet touched on, to have done this by particular jobs and particular sectors, we'd have got into all sorts of debates. Like, for example, if a doctor switches to being in another part of the NHS, perhaps a managerial role, and still does clinical practice as well on occasions, are they still covered and everything else? I think it's brought clarity, it's brought simplicity, and there's still an annual limit. So you can't put an unlimited amount into your pension. And when you come to draw your pension, you'll still be subject to income tax on it. 
Yes, there should be a solution specific to the doctors. And this is something, as I say, that's been done previously with judges. That's how it should have been done, certainly in favour of that, but not the wider reforms. What we've been saying is entirely consistent. Well, it makes no sense to both the head teachers, but not to doctors. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> right, well, we're not going to clean this one up just now, but let's move on to one of the big, big, big things that came out of the budget was reforms to childcare and allowing 30 hours of free childcare up to, to all children uh, nine months and up over the next few years as it, as it tapers in. Harry, I wondered what you kind of made of it. Obviously, it's been a big issue for a lot of people. I'm, I'm declaring interest. I'm a father of an 11-month-old baby. So um, yeah, this is going to definitely affect me. But what did you you kind of make of that policy and whether there's enough stuff behind it in terms of improving the supply before the kind of increasing the demand comes in as well? Yeah, great question. And I was very positively surprised by the extent and the generosity of the offer. I think, again, it focuses on that second aspect in terms of the UK economy of helping more people here in the UK who are currently not as active as they could be in uh, the labour market. We've got over a million vacancies in our economy. is is quite extraordinary. And uh, it's to find some of the ways to remove barriers. So there were some really powerful things in there. So for example, if you're on universal credit and you go back to work at the moment, you have to then pay for a whole month of childcare before it's reimbursed through the universal credit system. Now, the system's going to work so that, I understand it, the childcare is going to pay right up front. So there's yeah. no additional childcare costs on returning to work. I think that's going to be incredibly powerful. And I think there's one thing I would highlight in the Office for Budget Responsibility forecast is that they think that all of these changes are only going to add 100,000 people to the world. I actually think it's going to be more transformational than that. But of course, it's going to be phased in to enable the nursery sector to adjust in terms of supply. Mm. Ben, what did the IFS make of this childcare policy? I saw an a interesting stat, basically, that if you earn just under £100,000, you're better off than you would be unless you earn up to 134000 because of the way this childcare policy is going to work. Yes, we shouldn't understate the scale of this. This is a really big expansion in what we're expecting the state to do. And there are some peculiar features of it, as you say. So one of those is that while we've extended the 30 free hours for children under the age of three to families where both parents are in work, if one of those parents earns more than £100,000, they lose the access to those 30 hours. Now, that's not the case if you've got a three or four year old. In that case, you get 15 hours instead. But for this new policy for children under three, you lose all 30. And what that means is if you trip just over that £100,000 threshold, then you lose access to that free childcare and you actually could end up being quite a lot more out of pocket and worse off than if you'd never mm. got, say, that small pay rise. Mm. One extra thing to add on this is that because of this reform, the government is soon going to be setting childcare rates for something like 80% of the market. And so the stakes on that, of getting that rate right, are really, really high. And if the government lowballs on funding and doesn't provide enough cash to providers, you can risk causing havoc in the sector. Providers maybe will be reluctant to offer this new universal 30 hours. Mm. You know, people and it might the drive sector. the price up for those who don't get the free childcare, right? 
Exactly. But what, what childcare providers have been doing in the recent past is basically cross-subsidizing. So charging more to parents of one and two-year-olds to make up for the fact that the government was underfunding the 30 hours for three and four-year-olds. But if the government's funding everyone, that channel is just being closed off. And so providers might find it very difficult to make the sums add up if the government funding rate isn't high enough. Mm. Yeah, Nick, it, it feels feels a bit like a, a sort of Labour MP sort of saying that essentially the Tories are stealing a few of kind of Labour's ideas on this. But I suppose the devil is in the detail on this. And what did you kind of make of, of the way Jeremy Hunt explained how this policy might work? And there's lots of kind of already the early years alliance suggesting that there needs to be more funding at the other end rather than just funding for parents, essentially. Yes, well, I was Labour has made the political weather on this. We've been arguing about reform of childcare for some time. But my concern about this is that whilst, of course, I want to see attention being given to this hugely important issue, we're 13 years into a Conservative government. And the Chancellor announced that the rollout of this policy of the, the 30 hours per week will be complete by September 2025. We're talking well over two years ahead. That really isn't dealing with the urgent situation that we are seeing at the moment. And we have to see the detail behind exactly how this is going to work over, over the next couple of years. Here in Wales, where I'm uh, speaking to you, the three to four-year-old, the parents of three to four-year-olds, there's been the, the funded childcare, and they are in the process of rolling out now to two-year-olds. That's a real priority. The government leaving it until 13 years in just simply isn't good enough. Mm. Kevin, I actually had a question on, on this, the childcare stuff. It's been welcomed by a lot of people, but also there are some within your party that reckon that it promotes work over family life and suggesting that, that mothers are better off back in, in the workforce than at home with their children. I just wondered what you kind of made of that as an idea. Well, first of all, Alan, I think the suggestion made was parents because fathers might equally want to spend time bringing up their Yeah, children. as someone who, who, who's three days a week looking after their son, I, I can attest fathers do want to spend time at home as well, yes. I don't think we should just assume that if we do offer, for example, uh, future tax allowances or other things around parents staying at home, that that would automatically be the mother. We've moved on from the time when married men got tax allowances and things like that. I think in terms of this policy, a few people doing it would be good to have, look at how we could have more flexible. But in the, in the meantime, this is a positive change. It's very welcome. I'm interested to hear Nick's reference to Wales. It would be interesting to see if the Welsh Labour government decides to match what is now going to be offered to parents in England, particularly for one-year-olds. I understand they're considering that. It'll be interesting to see if they decide to do it. Uh, so this is generally positive, but I think where we would like to see, we could is there opportunities for some flexibility, particularly for those where a parent decides to stay home. But I have to be clear, Alan, it's about a parent deciding that, not just about mothers. Yeah, absolutely. So I just wanted to ask you, Harriet, you know, it feels though it's a bit of a trilogy starting with the autumn statement and then the budget, and then there's perhaps going to be another fiscal event before an election. Do you think that the Chancellor's going to look to sort of stay steady or perhaps look to steady things now and then make giveaways ahead of an election? Is that what the voters want? Or are they looking more for kind of a continued level of kind of economic competence, I suppose, is the best word for it? Well, we've certainly uh, got to go into the next election with their reputation for economic competence, for having dealt with the two massive shocks, the pandemic and the invasion and the impact had on energy prices effectively got to have got inflation back down again. The economy's got to be growing and we've got to be able to say we've got a plan to keep our debt at a, a 
manageable and sustainable level. So, you know, all of those things are what's what needed. And, you know, I think that yesterday's budget, by focusing on the things that could really make growth go to a different trajectory, in other words, the investment of businesses to tackle productivity and the productivity of our human capital, the great British public, that is, you know, gives a very good chance of being able to do that before the 2024 general election. Mm. Yeah, Kevin, do you think that if the Tories who are still quite far behind Labour, if there's a path to victory, is it kind of through an economic rebound? And if so, do you and your colleagues at the Conservative Growth Group think that, you know, tax cuts are going to be required ahead of an election to show perhaps your differentiation from Labour or that you were going to act differently and, and, and put money back in people's pockets after what has been a pretty difficult economic few years? Well, I think as we go into the next general election, we'll clearly have to have a tax and growth offer, you know, to show that we are different to the to the Labour Party. And I think it's perfectly possible for us to pull back where we are. There are a lot of people who are undecided when I'm out on the doorsteps campaigning. You meet people who may have queries, may have concerns. You know, we have been in government for 13 years now. There's certainly no enthusiasm out there for Keir Starmer and for some of what he's arguing for. And we saw that yesterday with a pretty dire response to the budget. So I think there is certainly there is a path there to victory, and it will certainly need to be one that shows clearly how a concerted government will foster growth and productivity in this country. Mm. And Nick, just on that, how how would a Labour budget have looked in terms of how different it would be to 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 a Hunt budget, not just sort of before an election, but perhaps going into twenty twenty five and beyond? What are the things that the Labour's looking to do differently? Well, well, firstly, I, I totally disagree with Kevin's analysis of, of Kia's response yesterday. It's the hardest thing for any leader of the opposition to do each year to respond to the budget. And it was excellent, despite the constant barracking of uh, Kevin's colleagues. <laughs> not uh, Kevin at all. We must, we must uh, test not, not Kevin, not Kevin himself, yeah, I obviously. I can't believe Kevin would, uh, would ever behave. He's very well behaved uh, in the chamber, very well behaved. Of course, absolutely. But we are highly ambitious for Britain, and that's why we've got our Green Prosperity Plan £28 billion each and every year to create the green jobs of the future, to insulate 19 million homes, to get that clean energy sprint so that we have security from dictators like Putin and we can bring people's bills down. This is the kind of ambition we need to get the growth that we need in our economy to be able to spend on our public services, which, by the way, our public services, even any mention of them, was noticeably absent in this budget. Well, and just to wrap up then, finally, Ben, your economic expert on this on this panel, the IFS said that Britain's becoming a high tax economy and that the government is bringing the tax burden up to levels the UK hasn't seen in decades. You know, how likely do you think it is which government of any stripe is has a chance of bringing that tax burden down over the next decade? I don't think any government has a chance of bringing it down substantially over the next <laughs> decade or two. This is not just a UK thing. Nice positive, nice positive is, way to end the podcast. I, I, I yeah. have to emphasize this is not just a UK thing. If you look across the G7, you look across the developed world, tax burdens are going up everywhere because everyone's grappling with the same issues of an aging population, of global shocks that keep hitting our economies, of the need to you know, buttress our defences against geopolitical instabilities. These are not UK-specific things, and we might have to make our peace with that. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the budget and other big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our free seven-day-a-week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right-hand corner of the website. Thanks to my brilliant guests, Harriet Baldwin, Ben Zaranko, Nick Thomas-Simmons and Kevin Foster. Thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe, review your podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. 
But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst, and this has been The Rundown.